Hello, I'm James Cornby and welcome to Capital Talk, the private wealth podcast brought to you by Stevenson Harwood. Welcome everyone to Capital Talk. And in this edition, we need to talk about the future of offshore. And to help us understand this topic, we have Simon Filmer. He's the head of corporate formations for Vistra, which is one of the world's largest corporate service providers in a staggering 46 jurisdictions. So I think it's safe to say Simon probably lives on an aeroplane for much of his life. Simon, welcome to Capital Talk. Thanks very much, James, for uh, having me here today. Congratulations on the launch of your podcast series. This is uh, very exciting and look forward to discussing the topic. So let's plunge straight in. There's a lot of talk about offshore versus midshore. And I wanted your explanation for those that don't know, what does midshore actually mean? So midshore is a term that was derived in opposition somewhat to offshore and was to describe jurisdictions with financial services industries that are not small islands with palm trees and very low tax rates, but they do have some elements of that uh, which make them very often compete directly with offshore jurisdictions. So can jurisdictions. you give us an example of a, of a typical midshore jurisdiction? Yes, yeah, certainly. Examples would be Hong Kong, Singapore, Malta, Cyprus, Luxembourg, Ireland, Netherlands. Jurisdictions that either have a territorial tax system or within their legislation uh, have some elements which would be appealing for financial service centres. And, and for those that don't know what a territorial tax system is, Give us an example of a country with a territorial tax system and what that actually means. Uh, Hong Kong would be an excellent example. So there would be a tax rate there and a tax would only be charged on activities taking place actually within Hong Kong. So let, let's then move on to a review of the offshore jurisdictions. Now, Vistra do a thought leadership exercise once a year, which I know you're heavily involved in. And as part of that, you interview hundreds, if not thousands of service providers across the world. And looking at the uh, list of the top five jurisdictions, this is voted for by practitioners. And I'm going to do this in ascending order. The top five is Singapore, USA, UK, British Virgin Islands, which we're now going to call the BVI, and Hong Kong. That's kind of surprising, really, isn't it? Because three out of the five top offshore jurisdictions are actually onshore jurisdictions or what you would call midshore. Do you want to comment on the results of this survey? Yeah, absolutely. We've been conducting this survey for 10 years now. And one of the themes that we've seen throughout the 10 years is actually a shift of business from offshore jurisdictions to the aforementioned midshore jurisdictions. And we have excellent examples in that survey, including Hong Kong, Singapore, UK in many ways can be described as, as a midshore jurisdiction as well. I think the important piece, though, is that this is not a zero-sum game. Because midshore jurisdictions are becoming gradually more popular uh, for business, it doesn't mean that there's not a role for offshore going forward, which we continue to see. We'll talk about the classic offshore jurisdictions later. One of the emissions from the top five, and indeed the top ten, is Dubai, United Arab Emirates. It's sitting there down at number 11. Why do you think that region's not more popular, especially given that uh, there's a complete freedom from corporate taxes at the moment in all of the Emirates? I think that any of the, I think we list something like 20 jurisdictions uh, in the survey. Any of those that are in the top 20 have substantial financial service industries. Uh, Dubai, there's a Global Financial Centers Index that just came out recently. Uh, Dubai was in the uh, number eight 
across cities compared against Beijing and Singapore and New York and London. We see the UAE as a very exciting growth area. A lot of business going into the UAE, a lot of business coming out of that part of the world, particularly in the private wealth space and also the corporate wealth space. Uh, people realizing that they need to deploy their assets across the world, perhaps as oil revenues sort of start to dry up. So we see, and, and we do this within our own office there. Uh, I understand Stevenson Harwood obviously has an office there as well. So we're very excited about the UAE as a financial services center and as a hub for business in the region. And do you think it's going up? Do you, do you think it will climb up the rankings? I think definitely so. I think 2019 has been a bit of a struggle for the UAE. They were on the EU blacklist earlier yeah. on, now removed from the blacklist. And so we do think that uh, as a hub for business, trade, travel, there are lots of people like myself based in Dubai and use that as a, as a hub for the region. Now, let, let's, let's focus on number one, Hong Kong. Unless you've been uh, hiding uh, under a rock for the, the last four months, you would have noticed uh, quite a lot of trouble going on there politically. You have offices in Hong Kong. I believe your, your business is actually headquartered in Hong Kong. And, and as you know, we've had an office there for decades. Have you seen a shift of business away from Hong Kong as a consequence of the troubles there? And if so, where do you think it's going? Yeah, so there have been discussions recently about Hong Kong's role uh, as an international finance center uh, following the recent uh, activities that are happening there. And from our perspective, we think that it gives clients pause to think about the future of Hong Kong. But for us, it remains a critical financial center and its interconnectivity to China uh, is one of the, the city's key value proposition. We are seeing some clients think about moving business elsewhere. Shanghai in and of itself mm. becomes more of a, an intermediator to the world, which is the role uh, that Hong Kong has traditionally played. Also, uh, Singapore is definitely having a strong business year, uh, which may or may not be, be connected to the protests. But we're very confident about the future of, of Hong Kong. There was recently an article in the FT which talked about on the banking side, a, a lot of Hong Kong people opening bank accounts in Singapore, and there's been a massive increase in bank accounts being opened, but money's not actually being transferred. It seems like they're sort of preparing themselves in case they need to move. They're sort of reviewing their options. Do you feel that uh, a lot of people are in a sort of holding pattern, just waiting to see what happens? I think there's lots of turbulence in the world at the moment. Obviously, the political climate across the Western world uh, is somewhat fractured at the moment as well. Trade wars and the like. People are looking for solutions and preparing for uh, events which may happen. Uh, Singapore is definitely a competitive banking center. And so we do continue to see clients uh, use it in that way. Okay, let, let's, let's move on from Asia and be a bit more macro on this. If you were to believe some of the newspapers in the UK and elsewhere, and actually some of the NGOs, the offshore finance centres are taking food out of the mouths of starving babies across the world, and are generally are a bad thing. Now, I know you don't believe that, but I just wonder if you uh, would be able to tell us in a few words why you think that offshore finance centres are a good thing rather than a bad thing. Yes, certainly. Uh, many of our clients are in developing parts of the world. They are using offshore centers, many of which have a British legal system, and they're using that because of cutting-edge legislation that helps them do their business and gives them legal certainty and access to justice and certainty wherever they are doing business. But how, how does that help African countries, developing countries, and so on, 
specifically what use is Cayman or the BVI to developing countries? So when a group of investors comes together, they are likely to be investors coming from multitude of countries. They may be looking to pool some funds to invest in infrastructure, say in an African country or elsewhere. And they may wish to do that in a jurisdiction which is neutral from where they reside themselves and which gives them legal certainty. And they're unlikely to want to do that perhaps in the developing country in which they're looking to invest. So it actually makes a lot of sense to be rooting that investment and to be pooling that through a neutral jurisdiction, which does not add on a layer of tax. So that's where the tax neutrality comes in, but also gives them legal certainty in making that investment. So the argument is that the offshore finance centres aren't taking tax away from countries, they're just facilitating investment and the tax will be paid anyway because it will be paid in the country of source and presumably the country in which the investor or the trader is situated. Uh, Absolutely and every offshore jurisdiction which will continue to operate uh, is making sure that it is allied to all the global tax standards that are evolving and is making sure that that is the case. I think the important point to remember is that if these offshore jurisdictions didn't exist, someone would need to invent them or something like it in order for these kinds of cross-border transactions to take place. Now, that's a very positive message, but that doesn't seem to be accepted by NGOs and certainly by the EU. But there are lots of threats on the offshore industry. And every time a new threat comes up, we think, well, that's the end of it. You've probably seen as many threats as I have. Do you think this is the beginning of the end of the offshore industry? And if not, what is the offshore industry going to look like in five years or 10 years time? Yeah, great question. Uh, I've been doing this like you, James, for, for quite some time. I've been in the industry for 20 years. And there have been probably four or five times across those 20 years where we look at a new piece of regulation and go, oh my goodness, if that's passed, then actually this might be the end uh, of the offshore industry. And actually what has happened is that these new regulations have actually cleared out some of the legacy problems that existed in these jurisdictions. And let's be candid that there were some legacy issues if we go back into the 80s and 90s. But actually what we have now within these jurisdictions is a much more resilient, compliant portfolio of business. And that helps us to look forward to the future. So that's a positive message for the future. Of course, we don't know what the top jurisdictions will be. And and I guess there'll be a new 2020 out soon. I'm sure you're not allowed to tell me the results of that. So I'm not going to push you. But we do. I do have one final question for you. As you know, we're not frightened of dealing with uh, controversial topics here on Capital Talk. So what I'm going to ask you is a very important question to do with jelly babies. And that is head or feet first and why? Head first, no idea why. Interesting. Now, I've always bitten the feet off first so the little buggers can't run away so ah, I can eat the rest good. of them. But I, uh, I have a colleague who eats the heads off first, and I asked why, and she said it's, it's more merciful that way because you end it sooner for them. That's a much better answer. Yes, That's it's a, a kinder answer. answer. So I think that what comes across from this, Simon, is you're a much kinder person than me. And on that bombshell, we finish this episode, and I look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you, Simon, for coming along. Thank you very much, James. Thank you for listening to Capital Talk, brought to you by Stevenson Harwood. I'm James Cornby, and I look forward to seeing you next time.